Rick Scarborough was pastor of First Baptist Church, Pearland, Texas. And he began to just take note of what was happening in the city. And I think, Rick, you began to attend the city council meetings. And he just heard, uh, he'll tell us more of the story, how far out they were and the direction they were going. And one day sitting there, he just said, enough is enough. And he began to lead his church. And if I'm correct, Rick, through the efforts of your church and what God led you to do, didn't y'all eventually elect all the school board members? Four out of seven. They elected four out of school board members and changed the direction of the school. And just, change, just had a great impact on that city. Even now, Rick's going around just rallying people to know that we can make a difference. Now, the main difference is that we pray. But also, we can get involved. You know, he's going to share with us tonight some things about our country, about its history, that you'll never hear in the school anymore. You'll never hear it. It's a well-kept secret. But it goes back and he historically documents how God has intervened during our historical, uh, as a nation, to bring us back to him. And at points in this presentation, we're going to pray and ask God uh, just uh, to hear our cry and to rally his people to take a stand in these critical days. Rick, we're thankful that you're here. Vision America is working all across America. God is using him. He's in many, many states. Maybe he'll share with you a little bit about what he's doing uh, to try to make a difference in the 2012 election. But we're, let's just welcome Rick. Let him know how glad we are to have him here. Okay. God bless you. All right, close your eyes. Imagine sitting in 70-degree weather. Perfect acoustics. An overhead projection system that's state-of-the-art. Listening to Dr. Fred Wolf preach after hearing that choir amplified, that it, it sounds like surround sound. And that's where you're going to be in about a year, maybe two. Amen? And it makes all this worthwhile. Amen? Uh, if if uh, schools, if everything went right, uh, no church would ever be built. We'd all be meeting in schools. But this is the, this is the period that makes you appreciate what God is up to. Amen? And uh, I want you to do something else that... that <clears throat> I've learned a long time ago that we, we preachers get a lot of the attention and acclaim and, and uh, we get a little bit of the blame when things go bad. But there's always behind the scenes somebody like Brother Rick, who's right now telling me don't do this. But he's been up here working in the heat to try to make our, our presentation come off. And if, if it doesn't, we'll notice him. But I want you to know I appreciate you right now, Rick. He's been working real hard to see if we could make this happen. If it, if it breaks down... We'll just stop and we'll pray. Amen. But I am delighted to be here. I, I'm delighted that wherever I go, I, I am an extension of the fellowship of Luke 418. Because God raised you up, uh, finances have been made available to help underwrite our work. And like all the other mission organizations you send, I like to think that I am a home missionary. There are a number of churches now that graciously assist us in this work. And we could not, we could not do this without your loving care. Pastor was correct. It all began with an ungodly high school assembly. I went to First Baptist Pearland thinking that'd be the last stop in my ministry. It was 26 miles from where I was born and reared across the ship channel uh, from where my parents had lived, uh, had lived since, oh, that was in 1990. They'd been in the same house for about 40 years to that point. Um, in fact, I was born, I was six years old when we moved to that house. They'd been there 34 years. 
And uh, it just seemed like the perfect place to be. My grandmother was in her 80s, and so I had a chance to be close to her for the first time in my adult life. Uh, We felt like we were planted there. And as an evangelist, and my background is evangelism, I began preaching and, and calling people to Christ. In the first 18 months, we were, we were blessed to see 500 people added to the church by baptism alone. Even Baptists agreed because of the nature of our setting. We were on a three-acre plot. In fact, Brother Fred came to the old sanctuary and preached in it. We uh, could see 1,100 in the sanctuary. We had education space for 500. We were backed up to a to a neighborhood on one side, a railroad track uh, was our border to the, to the east of us, a four-lane highway in front of us. There was absolutely no place to go. And so we were looking for land and we were raising money. The church was 100% united in that effort. When a lady walked out and said, are you going to the high school assembly? I've told this story to the church before, so I won't repeat it. But that led to a, an epiphany for me. We began running our people for school board. They dramatically changed the direction of the school. We began running our people for city council, dramatically affected the city council. And then some of our folks encouraged me to write a book, which I did, formed a doing business as a DBA. It was just really a non, it was just a $10 entity to funnel our money from the book sales through so we could keep proper records. When a lady called me and said, uh, what's the budget of Vision America? That's what Vision America was then, just a DBA. Uh, I said $100,000. Uh, within six months, she'd raised $100,000, gave me the check. I hired the first staff member, and we launched what has become a national movement to move pastors. From Pearland, we went to Harris County and saw 51 ungodly elected officials removed in one election cycle without ever naming names, without ever endorsing candidates, simply by getting 400 pastors in Harris County to agree to preach at least one message before election time on why Christians should vote, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as followers of Jesus. Number two, register everybody in their church family to vote. Number three, pass out voter information. The only thing worse than not voting is voting wrong. And number four, lead their people to the polls. Uh, it worked so well in Pearland and in the counties surrounding Pearland and then Harris County, the adjacent county, that funders began calling and saying, will you take this to the state of Texas? In 2002, we took it across Texas with about 15 different pastor events, uh, four or five major ones in which Rick Perry himself spoke. Uh, David Barton traveled uh, that uh, tour with us uh, as we became fast friends and and colleagues, and and began working more and more together during that period. And out of that trip around Texas, 2,500-plus pastors agreed to those four things. And in 2002, both of our state houses went pro-life, pro-family for the first time since Reconstruction. And every statewide office holder was elected pro-life, pro-family, staunchly so. Now we're hearing all this talk about how Texas is prospering, how God is blessing. We're the most pro-life pro-family, and pro-business state in the United States of America by every measuring standard. And I believe all because pastors, not all of them, but some of them, caught the vision. And that's what really launched Vision America. In 2002, after 12 years in that pulpit, after we got the relocation project finished in the church on a beautiful uh, 26-acre campus, I then launched full-time into doing this work. And we've gone from state to state. we, We never pick where we're going because we, we literally, we live or die by people sponsoring what we do and getting involved in it. We have just enough support 
for a modicum of staff because of friends like you. But these projects cost lots of money. And so we were called by folks in South Dakota to work in that state, one election cycle. John Thune was elected out of that. We were called to South Carolina. And out of that election cycle came Jim DeMint. We were called to work in, in uh, the state of, of uh, Louisiana. Funders were raised up in that state. And out of that came David Vitter. I mentioned in the Sunday school class this morning, he has not been a perfect legislator. He was caught in a horrible sin. But to his credit, he publicly confessed. His, his family has remained intact. And with humility, has continued to serve as one of our most pro-life, pro-family legislators. And I remind people that we're not looking for perfect people. We're looking for sinners who know they are. Amen? And so that's how it works. Now, right now, we've just about six months ago, we're asked, would I come into the state of Florida? Florida, everybody says, is a key state, battleground state in the upcoming national election. Uh, funding has been arranged through some godly laymen. We took our first trip through the state back uh, two weeks ago. We visited in eight days, 13 different cities, spoke about 15 different times, and networked over 300 pastors in that first pass, beginning all the way up in uh, just south of Pensacola, winding up in Miami where I caught a plane and flew home. After eight days of exhausting travel and meeting with pastors, our goal is to have 2,000 pastors networked in that state. As soon as I got home, I got a call from a, an organization uh, that, that is well known in the state of Michigan who heard what we'd just done in the state of Florida, and they've now asked, and we've presented a plan to go into Michigan. And then later in September, I'm, I've been invited to, step, to, to preach on the steps of the Capitol in Ohio, where the first heartbeat bill in the United States has been, will be signed into law on that day uh, by a very pro-life governor, uh, John Kasich, uh, I have the joy with about four others to preach on the Capitol steps and celebrate that for the first time since Roe v. Wade, a baby's life is protected from the first heartbeat. Now, that's not the final solution, folks, because I believe the moment of conception is when they ought to be protected. But this is a giant step in the right direction. And so that's what you invest in when you invest in our work. And I've wanted so much to come by and say to you, thank you. And my wife and I have prayed that God will convey our gratitude to the to pastor, staff, and to all the church family. This nation was built on the Word of God. And that's why the first slide we're going to look at tonight is simply a picture of the Bible. Did you know in Ezra, the foundation from which we get tax exemption is found? Turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter 7. Uh, by the way, that's on page uh, 404. If you just happen to have the same Bible I have. It says this, verse 24. You are also... You are also to know that you have no authority to impose tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers of the house of God. You remember the political leader, uh, he was a servant, but certainly a political leader, Nehemiah, did what no one else could do because he knew the, the right combination of prayer and works. And in 52 days, the wall around Jerusalem was built. But as soon as the godly politician finished his work, he handed the microphone to the preacher and said, Now let's celebrate and have revival. And in an all-day preaching session, Ezra the prophet said to the governmental authorities in Jerusalem, You are not to levy taxes on those who administrate the gospel. 
And that, beloved, is the verse our founding fathers used and came up with a unique way of freeing the church. Instead of the Church of England or the Church of France, in America there would be no state church. Uh, There would only be the privilege of Christians to select the doctrines they believed were closest to their own belief system and to the Word of God. And whatever money you gave to your preacher and your singer was tax-exempt. It is an absolute lie and a tragic miscommunication of truth. Our preachers today believe that the IRS gives us our tax exemption. The Constitution gave tax exemption to preachers and churches, and there today are many churches that have no 501c3 to this very day. And by the way, this is one of the things I educate pastors as best I can. Do you know how many churches in the history of America have lost their 501c3? One, the Prairie Creek Church of New York in Prairie Creek, New York, took a full page ad out in 1996 in USA Today and said, if you vote for Bill Clinton, you're committing sin. Now, they were probably right about that, but obviously that's a little over the line politically. But here's the thing that no one ever tells anyone. They fought that all the way to the Supreme Court and had their tax exemption reinstated because there's nothing in the First Amendment forbidding churches, if they choose, to take a political position. Now, is that a revelation or not? Now, I can't. My 501c3, I'm not a church. They could come after me like crazy if I did that. But right now, the Alliance Defense Fund, one reason I hate to take that cough medicine is it takes my voice away. I took it this morning. Now I'm trying to lose my voice. I'll make sure I stay hydrated. Uh, Don't you love these outdoor camp meetings? I mean, this is, listen, people used to come from miles around, Pastor, to be in a lot hotter places than this. And besides that, I have a great sermon on hell that I'm prepared to preach at any moment. Uh, I learned in seminary that if I want to be a popular preacher, always have the crowd out by 12 o'clock. And I give you my word, we'll be out of here by 12 o'clock. <clears throat> you got to listen real quick. But 501c3 was something that came along uh, under the, 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 the period of time that Lyndon Baines Johnson was on the scene. And preachers in Texas and other places were condemning this godless politician. So he added a little crevice in the IRS statutes that said, well, if you do that, you can lose your tax-exempt status. But because it has no constitutional authority, Alliance Defense Fund, a group of of more than a 1,000 godly lawyers, now are enlisting pastors. And for three years in a row, they've had the pastor initiative where preachers submit their outlines in advance to the IRS. They take political stands and say, sue me. And not one lawsuit has been filed Because the IRS knows they can't win the case. It is the, it is, you know, we die and for our lack of knowledge, folks. But the fact of the matter is the Constitution recognized this truth in Ezra. There's another verse that's very crucial to the founding of our country. Turn in Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33, 22 is an interesting and enlightening passage of Scripture. It says this. And if you're looking at it, read it out loud. It's, it's really easy to memorize. The Lord is our judge. Our founder said, hmm, a judiciary. The Lord is our lawgiver. Our founder said, hmm, an executive, or excuse me, legislative branch. The Lord is our king. Hey, an, edu- uh, uh, an executive branch. But what does the next verse say if you're looking at it? It is, it is our, the Lord is our king. 
It is He who will save us. Our founders absolutely understood government could not save man, only God. But because they'd experienced the tyranny of too much power in one man, they decided on a tripartite approach to government, which the world had never before seen. And they gave equal power to three equal branches. They gave certain power to the judiciary to make sure the laws passed by the legislature matched up with the the supreme law of the land, the Constitution. They established an executive branch to carry out and to initiate legislation. But three branches, co-equal, not one as we know today. Today we're living under an oligarchy and are slowly transcending to a dictatorship. An oligarchy is a rule by few. Uh, Let me illustrate. Did you vote for abortion on demand? But we have it. Did you vote to take prayer out of the public schools? But we have it. Did you vote to take the Ten Commandments off the walls of our schools? That's because we have been ruled by a small group of judges who think they can write law. And we haven't had the courage in Congress to impeach these judges. I have said on countless occasions, in fact, on the front page of the Washington Post on Mother's Day 2006, I awakened to people saying, get on the Internet. You're the lead story in the Washington Post. That'll make you get up early. But it was a somewhat flattering article because it said what I believe. Judges are the issue. And we're talking about the first article above the fold on the left-hand side of the first page. And they said what I have been trying to say, that we've got to get enough courage in our Congress, and that won't come until Christians wake up and call for it, to begin throwing these bums out that are rewriting our laws. Or we're lost. Our country was built on the Word of God. Um, Now, we're experimenting with this clicker to see if it's going to work. The second deal, uh, Rick said, otherwise come over and kick him. Let's see if it works. It's not working, so I'm kicking you. Hit it up, push it. Read this verse, you you had it. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Can you see that? Read that with me. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Next. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Now, folks, I want to ask you this question. Is the, uh, does this have a pointer? Okay, I'm getting this. That means no. So I'm putting that down. Aren't you glad? Put the second verse up right there. Aren't you glad that because of the education we've received in seminaries, that now the Bible doesn't mean what it says, that this word all does not apply to America? Boy, that was a close call, wasn't it? To the contrary, every nation that forgets God will be cast into hell. I want to ask you, do you think this nation, as a matter of policy, has forgotten God? Protesters out in front of the Reliant yesterday because the governor had the audacity to call for a prayer meeting. Next slide. Uh, what is this? Say it out loud. But, but what is he? He's a soldier. Amen. He was a general, in fact, if you recognize the decorations in George Washington's army. But let's go to the next slide. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.8. There is a time of war and a time of peace. Next slide. There is a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to pray. But there's also a time to fight 
And that time has come. Now, uh, Peter Muhlenberger said those words because he was also a pastor of a Lutheran church. And on a given Sunday, he walked out in his black clerical robe, preached that sermon out of Ecclesiastes, and then to the shock of his members, he pulled off the black robe to reveal he had joined the Continental Army and was a, a general in George Washington's army. If you've ever seen the Patriot, that picture of the pastor tearing off his, his uh, wig and uh, going off to war to fend off the wolves is loosely based on the story of Peter Muhlenberger. And did he fight? Next slide. Muhlenberger led, Muhlenberg, I should say, led his men in the battles of Morristown, Brandywine, and Monmouth Courthouse. Next. If you go to Statuary Hall, one of the most impressive things you'll see in the halls of Congress, there in the Great Rotunda, are all these tributes to great men who served this country. And one of them is a pastor. He was a pastor of a Lutheran congregation. His father was the founder of the Lutheran movement in America. And his brother Frederick roundly criticized him for leaving his flock and fighting in the war. Until Frederick's own church was burned down by the, by the British when he joined and became a high-ranking officer. And when they formed the first uh, Congress of the United States in ninth, excuse me, 1789, guess who the Speaker of the House was? His brother, Frederick Muhlenberg. Next slide. Jonas Clark, here he is in his preacher's garb. And that's the church that he pastored in Lexington, Massachusetts. Press the, the next slide. Here he is in his uniform uh, that they created so they would look like soldiers in that, towny, in that tiny town of Massachusetts. Next slide. Next slide. Jonas Clark said, I trained my men for this very hour, that they would fight and if need be to die, too, under the shadow of the house of God. Next slide. Next slide. Here's an artist's rendering of the battle that took place with the church in the background. Next slide. 49 colonists killed, 39 wounded. Next slide. Here's a picture that appeared in the papers around the country. Bloody butchery by the British troops. Next slide. Jonas Clark, after the Battle of Lexington, said, From this day forward will be dated the liberty of the world. And now a preacher could preach and say that if we're not careful, today will be the date when liberty finally ended. We are the last great light. Of liberty in the world. Next slide. Uh, on April 19th, 1776, here's a sermon Jonas Clark preached to his people. The fate of bloodthirsty oppressors and God's tender care of his distressed people. Don't you wish we had preachers in pulpits who would preach sermons like that once again? Well, we do. One's in this building, your pastor. But there, that voice is, is, is suppressed and roundly condemned by those who are trying their best to take God completely out of this country. And laws are in place now to put preachers who preach against sin openly in prison. In fact, the recent hate crimes legislation, which was turned back twice by threat of veto from, the, from our former President Bush, was signed into law just over a year ago by the current sitting president. And the law is now in place to put me in prison. If someone hearing me preach that homosexuality is condemned by God, and God forbid they go out and commit a hate crime against a homosexual, I am a co-conspirator because I have implanted that thought by preaching out of Romans chapter 1. Then days after that bill was signed, Vision America, uh, that you partially funded, held a press conference 
on the steps of the Justice Department and handed a legal opinion to an emissary of, of, uh, of uh, General Hogue. Uh, I'm not saying that right, but the Attorney General, we gave it to his emissary because he wouldn't meet with us, protesting that law and showing the fact that it is not a constitutional law. But it's still on the books, and we are in jeopardy now of those who call evil, evil, being themselves consigned to great restraint, if not incarceration. And pastor, on that note, I think we ought to pray and ask God to intervene. Can we stop and pray? There's a movement, well-planned, well-orchestrated, to turn this nation away from God. Every time someone takes a stand for righteousness, every time someone does something in the name of Jesus, there's a threat of a lawsuit. And many organizations and people do not have the funds to fight uh, in, in a court system. Rick said it. We have one branch of government now. It's, 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 the, uh, it's the law system, the judges. And they have passed the laws that made abortion legal and all of these things. So we, we just need to pray right now that would God would raise uh, up people who will pray against the tyranny that judges are causing in this land by the laws that they're passing and the laws that they're interpreting. So you join with me as we pray. Father, we realize that freedom is a gift from Almighty God. No man gave us the freedom that we have. Our freedom comes from you, our Creator, and from Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, we realize that there's tremendous oppression. It is a war. It may not be a war with bayonets and guns right now, but it is a war for the soul of this nation. And we pray, God, that you would wake the American people up. Lord, wake up the body of Christ. Wake up the body of Christ. And then just people who love this country, God, wake them up. That they will say, you're not going to take our freedoms from us. And we pray, God, that that, that that would be the courage to remove from judgeships people who are legislating unrighteousness and ungodliness. Lord, we ask you to wake the pulpits in America up. Where men of God will say, listen... We have a God-given right to fight for this nation. May not be with guns, but fight with the ballot box and, and fight with our prayers and fight with speaking out against that which would force on us. They say that they, we, they don't want us to legislate uh, righteousness, but God, they're legislating unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray you'd give us the discernment and the courage. Lord, I want you to put a burden on everybody in this room that in the days to come, we will just pray, God, raise up righteous and godly leaders. God, raise up righteous and godly people in the judicial system. Quicken us to pray, Lord. Quicken us to pray. We pray that, O oh God, in the name of Jesus. And Lord, let us know that we can make a difference. <clears throat> and Father, we do want to take this moment <clears throat> corporately and individually to repent of the sins of our nation. Lord, we have sinned against you, almighty God. When abortion was legalized, we sinned against you. When same-sex marriage was approved 
by states across this nation. We have sinned against you, almighty God. When we took prayer and Bible study out of giving the public right for people to do that. Lord God, we sinned against you. When we took the Ten Commandments down off the walls of the State House in Alabama and other places. Lord, we were just simply saying we no longer acknowledge God as our authority and our ruler. Lord, as we've given in to the pressure and the demands of ungodly people, Lord, we repent. We repent. Lord, for the prayerlessness that has gripped the churches, for the lifeless religion that has gripped the churches. Oh, God, we repent. We repent, Lord. We have sinned against you, holy God. And we ask for your mercy. And we ask for your grace. This nation has sinned against you, almighty God. And we ask for your mercy. And we ask for your grace. Now, Lord, give us wisdom as to what we can do individually and as a church and as a group of people to make a difference in this country. We know one thing, that revival has got to come to each of our hearts. Lord, if I'm not on fire for Jesus, if I'm not with him all the way, I'm going to be a part of the problem and not a part of the answer. And I pray that you'd put in every person's heart here that they would be completely surrendered to Jesus Christ, that they will become a soldier in the army of the living God, and that by righteousness and godly living, and that by being light and salt, people will know there are people who know the living God. Lord, revive your church, revive our hearts, that we might make a difference. Lord, don't let this just be a time where we come and we lament what has happened to our nation. Let it be a time that awakens every one of us up in this room to pray, awakens every one of us to say, I'm going to get involved, awakens every one of us to say, I'm going to be light and salt. Lord, kindle a fire, kindle a fire in our hearts, like you kindled in Rick's back there in that school, high school assembly, where he said, this is wrong, it is wrong, and he began to take action. Lord, let us say, man, it is wrong, and let us, God, by your Spirit, begin to take a stand and to take action, always in love, hating the sin and loving the sinner. But, oh, God, would you give us courage, give us wisdom, give us discernment. Let us unashamedly talk about the roots that we have as a godly, righteous nation. And, Lord, let your people no longer be silenced by a few judges or ACLU who threaten to sue us. Lord, let us say whatever it takes and whatever it costs. Oh, God, we will stand in the gap for this land that it will not be destroyed. Lord, raise up a group of prayer warriors out of this group tonight who will stand in the gap for this land. Lord, continue through Rick to show us, God, where we are and how we got there and how, God, we can change it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let me ask you, how in the world did we get from Midal and Marjorie to Madonna and Lady Gaga in one generation? From Little House on the Prairie to the Sons of Anarchy. From my three sons to two and a half men. From Charlie Chapman to Charlie Sheen. From Leave it to Beaver to Beavis and Behindhead. From Ozzie Harriet, and Harriet to Ozzy Osbourne. From movies like True Grit to Brokeback Mountain. From lifelong marriages to out-of-wedlock births and one-night stands as commonplace. From statesmen like Henry Hyde to filthy-mouthed comedian Al Franken. From an educational system which was once the envy of the world 
to dropout rates exceeding 50% in our major cities. Where the theory of evolution is taught as fact and the fact of God is taught as theory. Where sex education has become nothing more than the facilitation of fornication, completely with home studies. Some of the teachers. You know, I told the adults uh, this morning that when I was in high school pastor, we had sex education. They took all the boys in the boys' gym, all the girls in the girls' gym, blacked out the windows with tar paper, and showed us an hour of 16-millimeter projection uh, images of people with gonorrhea, syphilis, and other sexually transmitted diseases. When the lights came back on, we were so horrified, it took us three years of married life to get over it. Well, that's not what it is today. It's, it's a how-to course. Complete now with homosexual uh, inclusion in the curriculum. School-aged children in California now being taught that that's a, not only an acceptable, but in some cases, preferable lifestyle. A normal uh, behavior. We've gone from schools that opened every <coughs> classroom day with prayer and Bible reading, to schools now that you have to pass through metal detectors to get into, and where the prayer cannot be uttered, where a moment of silence has been considered constitutionally invalid for fear of somebody thinking you might be praying to God. The rationale for pulling down the Ten Commandments was kids might see them, and if they see them, they might read them, and if they read them, God forbid, they might venerate them, and therefore it's an unlawful mixing of church and state. Well, praise God, nobody's reading or acting the Ten Commandments now, and look what we've got. Prayer is out. Policemen are in. Ten Commandments are down. Gang warfare is up. And when's it going to stop? When enough men, like those in that first era, say, we will no longer live and subject our families to this tyranny. And preachers began applying the gospel to the world in which they live. You know, the tragedy of America today is a lot of preachers preach verse by verse and preach the truth, but never, ever apply it to the cultural issues of our day. St. Augustine said that wasn't even preaching. Uh, we just changed. Did you do that or did my pocket do that? We must be working because I just saw it change. Um, back it up one, if you will. So I want to get, make sure we're in the right place. All right, we were there. Okay, good. Uh, the next slide in this series says, The fate of bloodthirsty oppressors and God's tender care of his distressed people. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. I want you to know who these men are if you don't. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher who preached in a monotone, never raised his voice one bit, read his sermons, and God gave this anointed preacher a sermon entitled Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God. By the time he finished preaching it to his congregation, they were crying out for mercy. The message became famous, swept the colonies. Thousands of people were converted to Christ. Bars were closed where he preached the sermon. George Whitfield traveled all over both Europe and America, the first real national evangelist. George Whitfield would preach to crowds that measured upwards of a hundred, excuse me, 40,000 people. You know how we knew he, know he preached to as many as 40,000 people? Because that old atheist agnostic, that scientist by the name of Ben Franklin used to follow him around. And he would stand where he started preaching and began walking to the back of the crowd. 
backing up and measuring his, the tenor of his voice. And when he could no longer hear him audibly, he would then move side to side, measure the distance, and compute 18 inches per adult. And after the, after the crusade service in which hundreds would be converted, Ben Franklin said, well, there was 36,972 here. Do you think that preaching might have impressed Ben Franklin? I'll let you be the judge. Next. Uh, next slide. Samuel Cooper. Next slide. He was a pastor of Brattle Street Church in Boston, Massachusetts. Next slide. John Hancock and John Adams both attended his church as members. He was intimate friends with Samuel Adams, for whom all, all we know of Samuel Adams today is there's a beer after him, named after him. But he was a godly first uh, century, or, or I should say, in our early history, a godly legislator. Uh, regularly, this particular pastor corresponded with Benjamin Franklin. I was challenged by that. I've started corresponding with these legislators. You know what I find out? They want to know preachers are standing with them and for them. During the height of all the discussions last week about going over the brink and losing our national credit rating, which we lost anyway, I emailed, I actually texted my good friend Louis Gombert and immediately come back to text, Rick, you can't believe what it's like up here. I'm losing hope. Thank you for the encouragement. That's a paraphrase. Beloved, don't be guilty of saying all of those people in Washington, throw the bums all out. There are committed Christians, just not enough. And they're crying out for the church to pray for them and stand with them. Next slide. Here's a band of men, that first group of soldiers that fought there at Lexington. Farmers, settlers, not all of them even owned a weapon. Their weapons were rudimentary, but they had a battle cry. What was the battle cry? Next slide. We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. Now, where do you think they got such a battle cry? From the preaching they were hearing in the churches they attended. Next slide. Here's an incredible picture that many of you may have in your home of the prayer meeting that took place in 1774 in Carpenter's Hall when they were wrestling. These were the aristocrats in large measure and a handful of preachers saying, if we break away from England, we're going to cut off the purse strings. We're going to lose contact with our relatives. All the educational institutions are over there. What will we do? And they were wrestling. How can we afford to wage war against such a mighty army? It was Benjamin Franklin who later... Uh, reminded us of this setting in 1779 when they were wrestling over, excuse me, 17, yeah, 1779 when they were wrestling over the formation, I was wrong, 1789, over the formulation of how our government would be constituted. And they were arguing and everybody had a different idea of what kind of government we needed. Ben Franklin, uh, that old atheist and agnostic that you see right here with his head bowed, head in his hands, it was he who said, do you remember, sirs, when we were trying to find out God's will for launching this nation? How that we could come to it. We only, all we could do is argue and nobody had solutions. And he said, somebody called for prayer. And he said, in that prayer meeting, God came down in such fashion that even the Quakers were crying. And the famous quote you all know. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall from the heaven without God's notice, can a nation rise from the earth without God's care? No. We need to pray. We are told every day this, this man was an atheist. Perhaps he was a deist. We have no indication he ever converted to Christ. 
But I'm telling you, he was not the antagonist to Christianity that our students are being told he was in this current era of education. But rather, a God-fearing man who called them to prayer. By the way, you know who that is at the pulpit? A man we'll see come up in slides in just a few minutes by the name of John Witherspoon. A pastor who signed the Declaration of Independence, who became the chief lecturer and the first president of what we now call Princeton University, then known as New Jersey College. Next slide. Next slide. Here he is, a picture, as the president of Princeton. It was New Jersey College at the time. Next slide. Prior to voting to sign the Declaration of Independence, a member had lamented, we are not ripe for revolution. Pastor, can you remember how many times trying to find God's mind and it meant taking a step of faith, people would say, man, we're just not ripe. We're just not ready. But the leader comes forward and says, God's spoken. Look what he says. To which Witherspoon replied, not ripe, sir. In my judgment, we're not only ripe, but unless some action is taken, we will be rotting. Uh, There's a preacher mixing church and state. Amen. Next slide. John Wesley, Methodist, uh, circuit riding preacher. Next slide. Jonathan Mayhew, a Puritan. Next slide. General James Screven. Oh, that God would give us more people like this. Clearly a warrior. Next slide. Baptist pastor in Georgia. Next slide. Member of the Provincial Congress that met in Savannah on July 4, 1776. Joined the Colonial Army when the war broke out. Colonel of the 3rd Battalion of the Georgia Continentals. March 21st, 1776, 1778, excuse me. Promoted to Brigadier General of the Georgia Militia by the Georgia Legislature. Next slide. While leading his men in battle in Midway, Georgia, November 22nd, 1778. He was wounded once and said, put me back on my horse. He was wounded twice and said, put me back on my horse. The third time, they carried him off to a makeshift-filled hospital. Next slide. He died on November 24th, 1778. There's a marker behind this church that was built on the location where the church was he pastored. Next slide. Here's what it says. This stone marks the spot where reposed the remains of Brigadier General James Screven, in recognition of whose life and services the Congress of the United States has reared a monument in this cemetery. He was a gallant officer who, but although only 28 years of age at the time of his death, had attained the rank of Brigadier General. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you in this room are 28 years of age or older? Would you raise your hand? What on earth have you done for heaven's sake that men will be speaking of 200 years from now? Age 28, don't you imagine he had a family back home? He had an excuse for not being in the battle. He had a church to pastor. He could have quit after the first wound. Second wound, he would have gotten commended and lived. But he kept marching back into battle because he knew there was a cause greater than himself. And like David of old, when he saw the Philistines mocking God, he said, forget danger. Somebody's got to stop this man. I will not sit back while my God is being defamed. And yet the church of America has sat back and sat down and heard and put their fingers in their ears and and squelched their own voices so that we dare not have our comfort in any way disturbed. Next slide. George Washington 
If you've not read the book 1776, I urge you to buy it, put it by your bed, and you'll cry yourself to sleep. In that initial year, he had a ragtag army of of volunteers. No way to keep them there. Couldn't pay them their salaries. Their families were getting destitute because they had no money to send home. And he knew if he lost them that they had, we had no chance of getting a country. And so this man at Valley Forge gave his own money and sacrificed everything that he had. The next slide is what we think of most when we think of George Washington. Not great military genius, some people say. He only won one battle, one real battle. He was mostly a retreating general. But the next slide tells us everything about the man. There he is, on horseback, in the snow, begging God Almighty in Jesus' name to give us liberty or die. Beloved, I'll tell you what I want to suggest, Pastor. Boy, if we could huddle in little bitty groups and somebody take charge of every small group and lead that group in prayer. I want us to pray that God will make us a praying people. That God will make us a courageous people. Can we do that? Let's stand up, gather around in little groups and somebody in every group take charge and lead that group in prayer. And let's ask God to give us our country back. At any cost. You pray. Someone in the group just lead out and pray for this nation. Pray that we'll repent. Pray we'll turn back to God. Pray for God to raise up courageous people who are not afraid, who will stand like these people did when our nation was formed. You just, just pray. Cry out to God. Tell Lord that we're repenting and we need Him, that America's desperate. We're desperate for the intervention of God. We're desperate for Him to come and revive His church. Desperate for God to raise up courageous people who will stand for the kingdom of God. Jesus, your nothing touches your heart more clearly than seeing your people pray. I praise you, Lord God, that 
Cottage Hill and now Luke 4.18 has always been a praying church because the man who leads is a praying man. Lord, I pray that you deepen our love for you and deepen the intensity of our prayers. Father, I pray that you'd give this nation one more chance, one more sweeping revival. Lord, let the revival come. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd raise up a new standard, a new light for the world to see. Lord, we're anxious for Jesus to come, but may he find us doing his labor when he comes. And this I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to look at the next slide. James Garfield, 1831. Uh, Back it up, please. Not yet. I want you to see this man because few people know much about him. He was a president of the United States, elected to the presidency at the young age of 50. On his hundredth day in office, he was failed by an assassin's bullet. But what most people don't know about James Garfield, who died so early in office, uh, next. On February 16th, 1858, this man wrote his pastor, Brother Wallace. We have just closed our meeting with happy results. There were 34 additions and 31 by immersion, James A. Garfield. He was an evangelist, elected to president. Wouldn't you love to have a president like that again? Well, let me say this. This kind of president won't be selected in, in back rooms where smoke is, is rising to the ceiling as the fat cats decide who's going to run for office and whose turn it is. Only Christians can discern the level of, of, of morality in a man to find a man like James Garfield. But how many, how many godly men have I met over the years and women who said, Rick, I felt called to run for city council. I felt called. I used all the money I had to run for school board. And I lost by 10 votes and then discovered my own Sunday school class didn't show up to vote. By the way, four levels of government founded upon the scripture. Jethro walked up on Moses after the children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt. And he watched this godly man after a day of toil then sit in high council and try to administrate two million Jewish problems. And this law, this man who just happens on the scene for a brief amount of time, the father-in-law of, of Moses said, you can't do what you're doing. And here's what he said in the 12th chapter of the book of, of Exodus. He says, Moses... Choose out from among you men who are of high repute, who hate dishonest gain, who cannot be bought. Men who are not seeking office, but men the office seeks. And then he said this, appoint them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And the concept was underscored and written on the heart of the founders as they wrote the design for our framework of government and said, we'll have a federal level of government, captains over thousands. We'll have state government captains over hundreds. We'll have county governance captains over fifties and city governance captains over tens. Our nation was founded upon the rock of the Bible because of men who sought God's counsel and created nothing the world had ever seen. And this nation has survived the rise and fall of a thousand nations since we were founded. But every nation that forgets God is cast into hell. Next. Don't ever say we we need to get rid of the career politicians because some have been called for one reason, 
have been set apart to change one issue. Here is a single issue uh, politician. His name was John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, son of the second president. You know what happened after he lost his bid for re-election? Well, he went off into retirement, wrote books, and became uh, rich. No, he went back into Massachusetts and ran for the federal legislature in the congressional district in which he was born and reared. He's the only president who ever went back to Congress as a lowly congressman in comparison. But for one reason, to fight slavery, because the founders missed it on that issue. And he served in Congress till he died and never saw slavery ended. It ended shortly after his death. His impact and his his, his godly example impacted John Witherspoon, who saw slavery ended in England before it was ended here. Career politicians are not all bad. Some have been set aside for a specific task. We've got to be discerning as the church, find out the infidels and get them out and pray for those called. Next. I'm going to do this as quick as I can. First Amendment. When I'm with pastors, I show this slide four times. I'm going to show it to you once. But read it if you can. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably address, assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's called our religious liberty amendment to the Constitution. Just a little education, folks. After they wrote the Constitution, after those prayer meetings, it, the, the colonists still would not ratify them because they said, there's ten principles we demand and we want them underscored. And it came back as the first ten amendments called the Bill of Rights. And the first, freedom of religion. You know what? That first amendment did not forbade state churches. It forbade a federal church. There were two or three states that had state religions. Everybody in that state had to go to a certain kind of church. Uh, it didn't last long because they saw that they were recreating Europe and they abhorred that and finally got it out of the system altogether. But all this said was, nobody at the federal level can make any law respecting an establishment of religion. But it wasn't just religion. It also gave us the freedom of the press and the right to address grievance. Now listen carefully. In the first place, the first line of defense of freedom was to be the pulpit. They believed that if the pulpit was free and the pastors weren't controlled by the state, they'd call out the, the, the ungodly politicians. And they did for 200 years. But if the pastors grew cold, then maybe some enterprising uh, person in the press seeking a Pulitzer Prize would write a documentary or write articles and expose the infidels. But if the press and the pulpit were silent, then you could have a tea party. And by the way, what is a professional class calling the Tea Party now? They're calling them the wackos. Uh, no less than a former presidential candidate just this week said that those Tea Parties shouldn't even be covered in the press. Don't give them any voice. He was basically saying that we need to write them out of the country because they're standing up on principle and saying that we can't continue to borrow money until there's more paid on interest than the government's taking in. Can you imagine such insanity? But our founding fathers were smart enough to know that the first line of defense was the pulpit, the church. The second line of defense was the press. But when the press and the pulpit grew cold, and they have, then let the people rise up. Uh, next. Read this with me. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Next. 
Uh, this is where I've been trying to get all evening. This man, the preachers we looked at a while ago, gave us the first great awakening. And then a man training for the law, Charles Finney, very, uh, a very brilliant man, reading Blackstone's commentary of the law, which was the main commentaries for any legal student to study that were based on nothing but the Bible. He read so much Bible, studying for the law, he was converted to Christ, left the legal profession, and began blazing up and down this nation, preaching Christ. And one sin he hammered on was the sin of slavery. Slavery like abortion that treats individuals as non-entities. Gives one man the right to destroy another man. Look, next slide. Now, I'm fixing to play, I'm going to be Ed, and you're going to be the choir. I'm going to read my part, and then you're going to read your part, and you'll get your part down real well quick. If there is a decay of conscience, this man said, now read the next part. The pulpit is responsible for it. That's your part. Every time, that'll be your part, by the way. All right, next slide. If the public press lacks moral discernment, next if the pulpit, or excuse me, if the church is degenerate and worldly. Next. If the world loses its interest in Christianity. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away. He wasn't a real popular preacher among most preachers, do you think? And yet he was exactly right. And you know what? There was a remnant of preachers who listened and said he's right. And the foundation of the country was about to fall apart because slavery ruled the day. And the preachers wouldn't address it because the slaveholders gave the money. And the preachers wouldn't preach against it because the slaveholders would hold tyranny over them. And so they found justification and had verses of Bible they could use to make it okay. But there were those who continued to fight until they died. Ben Franklin was in the revolution for one reason. He said of his own writings, it was slavery that drove that man. He knew it was wrong, inherently wrong. Beloved, right now, our pulpits are silent because moneyed interests are buying their voices. They won't preach against abortion. They won't preach against homosexuality. And the fact is, all of that's so rifled through our own congregations, we don't hurt anybody's feelings. So there's a new gospel being preached. It's called, I'm okay, you're okay, they're okay, we're okay, and it's okay. Where are the prophetic voices? We were called salt to be salt and light. Everybody loves the light. The light is the pastor who shows up when people are sick. And the light is the person who prays. And the light is the person who gives. And all of that is a part of the gospel. It's just not all the gospel. The salt is the preservative. The salt is the cleansing agent. The salt is the prophetic side of the gospel. And it's been silenced largely in our nation with predictable results. This man, excuse me, back up please. Charles Finney was effective in helping to perfect the first, the second great awakening that saved this nation from total annihilation after much bloodshed. And now we need a third Great Awakening of America is to survive. We must have a third Great Awakening. Next. 
If ever there's a time that would come when vain and aspiring men shall possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. Samuel Adams. Next. Uh, that's the chapter on Ezekiel, or, the, or the verse in Ezekiel. We're the watchmen. Next. And this is where I want to finish. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A young, brilliant theologian in Germany when Adolf Hitler came on the scene. Everybody said he was the genius of his generation. People began embracing Adolf Hitler because he restored pride and national heritage and got people jobs and brought hope and change. Then he demanded one day that they call him the Fuhrer, the leader. This man said, there's no leader for me but Jesus. He became a marked man, a hated man. He left Germany for a while and came to America. You know where he served for two years? In the, in the streets of Harlem among black churches where he learned to love the, uh, the black uh, personal religion instead of that staid traditional kind of orthodoxy in the, in the German tradition. And he learned that Jesus was personal. But he also began to realize, I can't hide in America while a man, a madman is ruling our country and the church is being silent He's being embraced by his, because he makes donations and gives gifts and hires and pays the preachers. So he went back and he formed with other very obscure men a movement called the Confessing Church. And he said, if it costs me my life, I'm never going to surrender my life and liberty or nor our country to some Fuhrer. He referred to, to Adolf Hitler as Satan's Fuhrer. And he wound up in a concentration camp for it. All he had to do is recant. He was such a well-known preacher. He could have been set free. He just had to embrace Adolf Hitler. But he said no. Two weeks before, the Allied forces freed the concentration camp in which he was kept. They took him out with a piano wire and strung him up. Strangled him with a piano wire because they discovered that was the cruelest, most lengthy kind of strangulation. But here we are now in 2011 and we're memorializing this man and remembering his courage. And what America needs is that kind of faith, that kind of courage, that kind of unbending man of God again. When I travel this country, folks, this is what I'm trying to teach preachers. What you're investing in is what I showed all over the state of Florida. And I want you to pray for me that God will help us find the remnant. Because the only, America has a preacher problem. As the church goes, so goes the nation. As the pastor goes, so goes the church. Just look around, folks. Godly pastors produce godly churches. Self-anointed pastors produce nothing but division, heartache, and ruin. False gospel is attractive... It just doesn't make a difference. Oh God, give us men of God like these we've seen tonight. Pastor. Let's pray together. I want you to join with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized that he just could not be bought. The major church in, 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 in uh, Germany, when Hitler rose to power, was the Lutheran church. 
And he told the preachers, you can preach as long as you don't preach against anything that I do. Got them to sign uh, the third right. Got them to embrace that. And they became silent. And eventually became the church, the Lutheran church became the great supporter of Hitler. And he was the one that said that Jews were just like an animal. And that's why he killed six million. You say, well, that was Germany. At that time, it was one of the smartest nations in the world, the most technological nations in the world, far advanced. Remember their machinery of war? Their intelligence did not stop them from being deceived and going down a road that led to the destruction of multiplied millions, including their own nation. Rick is right. It's not going to begin in the Senate or the House or the White House. It's going to begin in your house and my house where we say, under God, I will not be silent. Under God, I will vote. Under God, I'll encourage other people to take a stand. Under God, I will take time every day to pray, oh God, have mercy on this nation and turn us back to you. Now listen, I mean, it's desperate, folks. We can say, I got, listen, I'm telling you, now is the time. Now is the time. Maybe God will give us one more great awakening. Maybe God will give us one more chance. That's what we're praying. We don't deserve it, but we're just asking God for mercy. So let's just spend just one few more moments praying. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you how to pray. Just ask him to lead you how to pray right now. For yourself, for your family. Our mayor in Mobile realizes, hey, it's out of control. We need a curfew. It's out of control. We need to tell people how to dress. See, he realizes that, that we're living in a city where lawlessness, even among young people, is just out of control. Our city jail that was built for 1,300 had 1,800 in it. I mean, we look at our own city in the, quote, Bible belt, and we realize, man, it's out of control. Probably half of the homes in, in Mobile, Alabama don't have a male figure, a father figure, a man figure in that home to provide direction or guidance. I mean, we don't have to go outside of Mobile. Man, we need to pray for this city. We need to pray for God to raise up righteous and godly leaders. Needs to start right here. You just pray.